Welcome to the very first episode of the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with landscape photographer Matt Payne to talk about how the creative process is impacted by internal and external factors, how advanced techniques in post-processing have influenced the public's perception of nature and of photography as an art form, what it means to put nature first in landscape photography, and so much more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, and I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Matt Payne. Many of you may recognize his voice as the host of the F-Stop Collaborate and Listen podcast, which recently celebrated its 200th episode. Matt and I share similar values when it comes to doing ethical landscape photography, which we touch upon in our conversation today, among many other interesting topics. But first, let me give you a brief background on Matt. Matt is a landscape photographer living in Durango, Colorado. Much of his photography has focused on his lifelong goal to climb the 100 highest mountains in Colorado, which he completed in 2017. Matt is a co-founder of the Natural Landscape Photography Awards and the Nature First Photography Alliance. And as I already mentioned, he is also the host of the F-Stop Collaborate and Listen podcast, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. And so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Payne. Matt, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's fun being on the other side of the microphone. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so in the intro, I already gave a, a short bio on you, but for uh, those people who don't really know your backstory too much. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about who is Matt and how long have you been climbing mountains and doing landscape photography? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I'm 42, uh, married, and I have one kid. His name is Quinn and he's 13. Oh boy. One yep. age. Yep. And uh, pardon the mess behind me. That's This is my bedroom slash office slash exercise room. I live in a really small house in downtown Durango, Colorado. Nice. Um, where houses cost a billion dollars a year. So yeah. we've got the only house we could actually afford. So, <laughs> But conveniently located, I bet. Yes, absolutely. So in Durango here, I'm 30 minutes away from the San Juan Mountains, which is, oh, that's nice. in my opinion, top three mountain ranges in, in the country Yeah, um, in terms of scope and size and beauty and um two and a half hours west or an hour and a half south i'm in the desert wow so it's a pretty awesome location for sure to be in yeah for photography did you grow up in colorado in D or durango I, I did i i actually grew up in colorado springs okay uh which is super conservative um i'm actually a fifth generation native of colorado springs my great 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 grandmother came there in a covered wagon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, way back in the day. Um, That's cool. And uh, so, yeah, and then I, I moved to uh, Portland, Oregon 
in 2014. I lived there for two years and then I moved back to Colorado here to Durango. Um, and I've got my bachelor's degree in counseling. Okay. And my master's degree in clinical psychology. So, but mostly yeah, I just nerd out on nature and the mountains. And that's actually, that's how I got into photography. I, um, I was, it's kind of a funny backstory, but I was, uh, super into world of warcraft i don't know if you've okay. heard of that i have yeah i've it's never played it but I, i'm familiar with it massively multiplayer role-playing game yeah with it's basically they get you hooked and then it's like crack yeah and, and you can't get <laughs> off of it um and so i was i played that for forever and i started to get really fat <laughs> and so i looked in the mirror one day and i was like i should probably do something about this and um <laughs> i uh, you know growing up i had my parents and i they would take me out uh, hiking and camping and we did a lot of like easy mountain climbs here in colorado mm-hmm. and my dad was trying to h- climb the highest hundred mountains in colorado so he would take me up all the easy ones wow so mm-hmm. i had like 25 of those done before i was in my 20s wow um yeah and so then i decided i'm just gonna get back into that because that's good exercise right so that's how I got into photography is I started just bringing a camera with me and I wanted to just document those mountain climbs and, and the rest is history. I just started getting really obsessed with, with both of those things at the same time. And so this was in yeah. your twenties, uh, actually, uh, in, let's see, 2006, eight, 2008 okay. is when I got so back like into it. So 12, I was 12, 30? 13 years ago. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, man, when you hit the thirties, man, that's, it all goes downhill, doesn't it? Yeah. And I was, you know, <laughs> I, I never believed it. And then, and I was always like athletic and everything. And then the thirties came and I was like, what? Like <laughs> yeah, the calories count twice as much now. It seems. <laughs> and I was bad too. Cause I would drink like four or five Pepsis a night, stay at yeah. like two in the morning, you know, oh, just, man. oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. You needed some nature for sure. <laughs> yep. Yep. Definitely. And yeah, I just haven't really looked back since then. So yeah. Cool. Um, well, I'm curious. I don't, I don't necessarily want to go down a, a gear rabbit hole, but you have climbed some pretty massive peaks and so I'm, I'm curious you know camera gear or outdoor gear you know either one like what did you typically pack for excursions like that imagine you know especially if you're doing some mountaineering you've got all your ropes and everything so did you often bring your camera equipment or was that just always I mean, wow so that your pack must have been super heavy um so i was like the crazy guy that always would always bring a tripod so um, so I always had my tripod and then depending on the mountain, I would either just have like, for a long time I had my Nikon D800 mm-hmm. and I would bring the Trinity. So I had the 14 to 24, the 24 to 70 and the 70 to 200, which was ridiculous. Wow. That's a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. Just stupid. And, but for a lot of the technical climbs, I would just bring the 24 to 70. Yeah. And that pretty much was fine for most of what I wanted to do. And then in 2017, I switched over to Sony. Okay. Uh, which was, and I got some really light prime lenses. And I think I shaved like eight pounds off my gear when wow. I did that. I mean, you could do that with Nikon or Canon too, but. Yeah. yeah I just switched to mirrorless on Nikon, actually. Oh, uh, like the Z7 or something? Yeah, I, I rented, I was having some problems with the D810 that I, I always had that. And then. It was just sort of back and forth with Nikon and it got fixed. Everything was fine. But then uh, 
I rented the Z7 while the Nikon, was, the D810 was being repaired. And I was like, oh, this is so much more comfortable. Yeah. And the 24, I had the Tamron 24 to 70 with the D810 and the mm -hmm. combination was just like a beast. And now the little mirrorless 24 to 70 on the Z7 is just so much smaller. I mean, I feel the like F4, I have, the S. Yeah, the F4S. And it's yeah. fine. You know, like I almost never shoot less than F4 yeah. unless I'm doing night photography. And so really for, for hiking and everything, it's really all I need. Um, and then I recently splurged and got the Z6 II as a backup camera. So nice. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited. It just, you know, I'm small and so I don't need to be, you know, putting on extra weight in my pack if it's unnecessary. Totally. So, yeah. So, so you, in 2017, I read that you, you finished your hundred highest peaks in Colorado. So congratulations on that. That's a huge achievement. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so are you still doing a lot of mountain photography now, or are you starting to explore, you know, subjects at lower elevation? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm definitely, uh, still into, um, getting up into the mountains and taking photos, although it's less around, uh, peak bagging as you would probably call it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's more about, okay, how do I get to a really interesting, unique vantage point of this mountain range or these sets of mountains at different times of the day? So mm, I did yeah. a lot of that last summer. So I climbed some easier mountains that had some incredible views. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was also, it was, it's also nice cause I could, I brought my son with me and so he got to experience like his first mountain and oh, that's cool. stuff like that. But, um, I've been spending a lot more time in the desert um, now that I don't have the obsession of mountain climbing as much. Yeah. Um, so I'd say I'm, I'm still into it, but it's not as obsessive. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. So what would a, like a typical photography outing be like for you? Do you tend to go out like for an afternoon or do you go for weeks at a time or how does that fit yeah. into your schedule? Because you're not doing photography full time right now, right? No, I have a full time yeah. job. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have Fridays off. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So I can string together like a really nice long weekend pretty easily. Yeah. Um, so I would say it kind of is between one one or two kind of options usually. Usually it's either for like a three or four day trip, um, quick get up into the mountains or out into the desert for a couple of days, or I'm doing something that's like a, a 10 or 11 days long. Um, that's usually like a fall color trip. Okay. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. So it it just depends. And very rarely am I doing afternoon or what single day stuff it's just yeah it's hard to do that yeah i mean it's nice to get out and do that once in a while and you know keep your brain <laughs> working the camera but right uh, it's it's not as fulfilling for me yeah yeah no i totally get that i try to get out i try to hike once a week that's sort of like a commitment i've made to myself and and not like necessarily a big hike it could be just a town maintain trail and i usually bring my camera just to like you said, just to kind of keep things oiled, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, and I don't know about you, but I find that if if I do like a three day trip or something, or a ten day trip, the first day, day and a half, I'm not as creative. I'm still trying to get acclimated to being outside again, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's I like having a longer stretch of time to kind of get into the groove of things. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then it just becomes so much more second nature and you're not, yes. you know, being like, what? I've been in aperture this whole time and I priority and I thought I was in manual. Like, right. <laughs> or, yeah, I'm whatever. in ISO 3200. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Yeah. Where my lens cap was on. What the heck's going on? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive a little deeper now and talk about creativity and, and composition. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your creative process. You know, where do you get inspiration from and, and you know, what's your approach to composition look like? Yeah, it's definitely morphed over the years. I would say that's one of the things I love about photography is that it's kind of a journey that never ends. Yeah. And what I've kind of found is that my my approach to composition is kind of come full circle. Mm-hmm. When I first started out, I and I think we all kind of do this a little bit, but when I first started out, I just took pictures of things that I thought looked interesting. Yeah. And it looked pleasing to my eye. Right. Um, and then I got like really into the rules and the rule of thirds and making sure things are super, you know, in proportion and balanced and things like that. Um, and you, lo- you learn a lot about how to see yeah. the, the scene in front of you better when you do that. But I think you also kind of lose some of that natural kind of curiosity of, oh, look at this cool thing I found. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I would, I guess what I would say is now I kind of try to blend those two approaches together. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I would kind of describe it as um, hyper curious and then trying to make it work with what I can find. Yeah. So, you know, that could be looking for leading lines uh, that are created by either patterns or shapes or the light itself. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be looking for just different shapes or, you know, uh, layers in the scene, things like that. I'm always just trying to piece together something that makes sense in my brain, um, but isn't necessarily formulaic. Right. Um, yeah. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Yeah. It seems like there's so much debate out there about like the rules of composition and the people who are like, follow the rules of composition and then the other people who are like, you're not creative if you follow the rules and there's like a lot of judgment around it. And, um, well, they're both right. Right. Exactly. And then and they're and both it, wrong. Right. <laughs> and it also drives me crazy that no one seems to be able to like agree on the number of rules of composition, you know, like yeah. it's like any number and, um, like you have to have three things. Right. Right. In your scene. Yeah. Well, not really. Not you can really. have one. Right. I mean, I will say like, <laughs> having an odd number sometimes for whatever reason is more pleasing you know if like you're shooting a scene with trees like two trees is mm, right unless those trees are very different right like unless it's like like a like a juxtaposition that you're trying to do or or symmetry in some way where you want the even balance right yeah so i i think the psychology behind it and i don't know how much you know about that with your background but like the how the brain you know, perceives information, I think is where the rules have come from. You know, like there are reasons sure. why some of these things are visually pleasing to us. And it doesn't mean that, you know, every photograph has to abide by every rule of composition. It actually can't, right? You can't like follow the rule of thirds and, you know, put the horizon in a certain place or whatever to emphasize, you know, whatever. Like it just doesn't always work that way. So, although I will say, yeah. like, especially for panoramas, it's for me anyway, it's super helpful to not have like a split horizon, you know, 50 50 split. Yeah. But honestly, what I found is that uh, I don't know about you, but I look at a lot of photography mm-hmm. just because of the podcast and everything. Yeah. And I get kind of bored with seeing the kind of formulaic presentation and things like that. So, yeah. I 
some of my my best photos I feel like are ones that are just su- surprising and maybe it's totally off from those rules and and it feels weird and that's kind of neat yeah, and different yeah. you know what I mean the approach that I like to take is what's the purpose of the photograph or what's the intent that you have you know and if your intent is to create imbalance then put imbalance in there like that sure. that intention is playing a purpose you know I I'm not going to lie I, I will say probably 25% of the time I'm actually thinking about my intention. Yeah. I would say 75% of the time I'm just reacting to what I see and what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing and then trying to convey it. Right. Um, in a pleasing way. Uh, and then later I look at something and I'm like, oh, this is what I'm trying to convey or, right. <laughs> or, and then another cool thing I like to do is like, what else is this? I actually just did an Instagram post today of a scene I shot on Friday where it's like this, these rocks, um, this huge, uh, anticline of rocks in Utah, but it's like, what else is it? Is it, is it shark's teeth? Is it, mm. is it, uh, crashing waves? Is it, Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, what else can it represent? So I think that's right. another way of kind of making your compositions interesting. Yeah, for sure. Actually, that and was I, one of my favorite things as a kid we had, I don't know if it was like a, a national geographic magazine for kids, or I can't remember exactly what it was, but on the very back cover, it was what in the world is this was, I think, what it was called. And oh. it was like super zoomed in pictures of things. And you had to guess what it was. And that always fascinated me. It was always like, what could this be? You know, yeah. you just reminded me of that, you know. Yeah, totally. So um, do you you had said earlier that, you know, you tend to take um, long weekends and that sort of thing. So are you scouting locations first? Uh, or do you just like kind of go with the flow or you kind of, you're familiar with where you're going enough to know that like, if I get to this elevation, I'll have this view or like how much pre pre planning do you do? Yeah, I will say more often than not, I don't do a ton of scouting. Um, it just depends on how much time I'm going to be out. Yeah. Um, or if it's somewhere I've never been before, I just look at the map and say, okay, this, this area looks kind of interesting. I, w- I will admit that um, I have the extreme benefit of going on trips with my friend Kane mm-hmm. Engelbert, and he's obsessed with his planning and scouting. And like, he just, that's like his, he's really, really good at it. And he's good at finding stuff on Google Earth. And, and he's like, let's go check this out. And I'm like, hey, man, let's do it. Let's yeah. check it out. <laughs> you know, and I get really, I'm really lucky that he invites me on these trips because he's already done a lot of the work, a lot of the hard yeah. work. And I just show up and react to what he's already found. And so I'm super lucky in that way. But if I'm going out by myself, typically, um, almost intentionally, I'm not doing any scouting because I kind of want to just see what I find. Yeah. Uh, But it just depends. Sometimes it's about getting to a certain area that I know is going to have lots of opportunities. Mm -hmm. So the scouting is more about logistics of the location. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely like to kind of just go with the flow and see what I see. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I used to do these things on YouTube called Woozles, uh, which was like, you know, I actually think it's a Winnie the Pooh reference Okay. Um, that he would go on a Woozle, which was basically like a, a, a trip with no destination mm-hmm. just to see, like, could I find new locations or, you know, but I had to come back with something. You know, I wasn't allowed to come home until I came back with something. And it was kind of a fun challenge. Um, yeah, but. I used to, uh, back in 
2013, 2014, 2015, that area, I would go out shooting with a very preconceived idea of what I wanted to get. Mm, mm-hmm. And I found that to be incredibly frustrating and unrewarding because 95% of the time, I did not come home with what I went out to get. Yeah. Um, which is just the reality of being a landscape photographer. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if that works for you, that's awesome. But what I found is, you know, the, the amount of time I had available to, to make photos was pretty limited. Right. And that was not a sustainable practice. For yeah. Me. Yeah. And so I decided uh, in 2017 about in there to just go places and react to what I find and be adventurous and curious. And it's been so much more rewarding because I don't have any expectations of what I'm going to do. Right. Yeah, totally. I totally get that. Yeah. And you come home with stuff that probably no one else has. too. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it helps you also develop the ability to see things, you know, recognize compositions when your mind is open to the possibility of anything. You know, you're not sort of um, putting the blinders on and only looking for this one thing that you're setting, setting out to do. Yeah, and you're trying a lot of new things that probably are going to fail. Right. But I, you know, part of my background is like um, performance improvement and, you know, quality improvement. And one of the kind of tenets of that is fail fast, right? I think that's an engineering term, too. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you can, the faster you can fail, the more improvements you can make on something. Right, yeah. I like failing. Yeah. And I do it a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the other way I've heard that said is, um, you know, action leads to clarity, Hmm. you know, so just like, just do it, just do it and see, you know, you'll you'll have your answer right away, you know. Absolutely. So when I get stuck in, sometimes I'll be like, you know, I'll have my gears all on my back and I'm tromping through the snow and I'll see something and I'm like, eh. Yeah, like, do I want to take the camera? And I'm, and I find myself debating. I'm like, by the time you're done debating with yourself, just take the stupid camera out and try. <laughs> you know, right. you never know. You never know. And sometimes it works out great. And it's like, wow, I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> you know. And if it didn't, that's data that you can then use to do it better next time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah. Um. So, with your background in, you know, clinical psychology, in what ways do you think the creative process is determined by or impacted by sort of our mindsets or other psychological factors? Oh, my gosh. There's so much to unpack right there. <laughs> um, so, I actually did a lot of research on this today. Oh, prepare cool. for this because nice. I... Didn't want to sound totally stupid Um, because I will admit I have a master's degree, but it, you know, it was 2003. Right. So I have to, you know, I have to brush up on some of this stuff from time to time. But, um, you know, the way I I kind of think about creativity um, and and, and psychological forces, I I kind of pit it against um, different things that motivate us mm-hmm. um, as, as photographers and as artists and as human beings. And I think often those motivations um, kind of either inform or get in the way of creativity mm-hmm. or they make, make us think we're being creative when really we're just following a trend. Yeah. Right. right. Um, so I think there's some significant differences between like the drive for competition and ego and, you know, external validation um, 
and art and creativity and what motivates us to do that. So let's talk a little bit yeah. about each of those things. So, yeah. I mean, I think whether or not we'd like to admit it, I think we are competing as artists. Um, and what I mean by that is we're competing for the attention and for eyeballs mm-hmm. on our work. Right. Right. Or it could be like a YouTube video or whatever. Right. Um, unless you're one of those people that never shares their stuff and doesn't care if anyone else ever looks at it. That's great. Then you don't have to worry about this stuff. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, this kind of informs the whole behavior of competition. Yeah. Um, and competition motivates, uh, motivates individuals, you know, to work harder, uh, to obtain better outcomes, but it also can lead to some negative effects, mm-hmm. um, such as increasing dishonesty uh, in pursuit of our competitive advantage and also decreased pro-social behavior, which we often see in social media and um, the way that people talk about their photography in a way that might be misleading. Right. Um, so, you know, there's actually been lots of uh, social psychological experiments that have um, demonstrated that when people succeed in competition against others, it seems to compromise their ethics. Huh, interesting. Um, and so if you think about people that are highly successful and competing against others in, in being creative or in being photographers and putting their stuff on social media and getting lots of likes and comments and huge amounts of followers, if that really is motivating them, then they're going to do lots of things that might not be seen as ethical to continue that. Right. Whether they think they're doing it or not, or want to admit it or not. And I'm not saying everyone, but I think that it does happen. And, and I think there's different like layers to that ethical side of it. Right. So it could be just just in terms of dishonesty, but it could be also, um, how would I want to say this? Like ethics to yourself. Like, are you staying pure to your own creative process or not? Totally. And, and I guess I feel like I can speak to this a bit from my own from my own perspective because I, in retrospect and introspectively, I can see that I've made some of these mistakes over the years and have kind of seen them for what they are mm-hmm. and have owned it. Um, and so I'm trying to help other people see, like you know, maybe you're falling for some of these psychological traps that I also fell into. And yeah, let's just be honest about it. But uh, yeah. So what, know, what do you think facilitated the change for you to sort of get that perspective, the new perspective? For me, it was, for me, it was having lots of conversations with people on my podcast Yeah, and getting their perspectives and learning about kind of the way they think about the world. And, and honestly, a lot of it for me was hearing about how other people were being affected by other people's behavior. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause you can feel people's pain, their anguish, you know, longing for the way things used to be, um, you know, wishing, wishing that they could compete in the marketplace, but if they felt like they had, if they wanted to compete, they would have to compromise their own personal and ethical standards right? in how they practice photography. So it's, it's super interesting. Um, all on the conversely, um, I think there are some things that we can do to kind of have a positive impact on our creativity. Yeah. Like what? And I think, I think the main one is to have, to really focus on intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Um, and, and I do that. I do that by asking myself, why, like, why am I doing this? What's important to me? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I really value as a photographer, as someone who loves nature? Um, you know, intrinsic motivation 
essentially it's just the motivation that comes from within yourself. Right. And um, you don't do something because you get paid for it or because you get punished if you don't do it. You're doing it because you think it's interesting, you like the challenge, and you want to get recognized by others or because you, or so that you can learn new things. And um, what the research shows is that people that are intrinsically motivated are much more creative. Mm-hmm. And there's actually four sources of intrinsic motivation. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, what are so, they? So those four things are meaningfulness, which is you feel that, that what you're doing is important. Mm-hmm. Um, choice. So that's uh, that you perceive that your work is of your own making and that you have the freedom to influence it. Mm-hmm. Um, competence. So you feel like your work is of high quality. And then lastly is progress. You, you feel like you have confidence in the future and you feel that you're doing the right things. Yeah. So I think if you focus on those things for yourself, instead of looking out to see, you know, what's popular or what's working on social media um, or, oh, this post I put up got 300 likes, but that one only got 100. So that means I have to do more of that thing. Right. I think that's a tr- bad trap to fall into for creativity. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that with my own work as well back in, you know, 2015, around in that time period. Yeah. You know, I would I would literally go out into the field and I I would have that thought process. What will look good on, for social media? What would get print sales? Right. What's going to get me recognition? What can make it on the popular page on 500px? Right. How can I edit it to make it look crazier and get more attention? Yeah. And yeah, no, I, I totally hear that. I mean, when I was starting to get into Instagram, I also felt this pressure of like, well, I need to post this week. So I need to go out and create something. So like on one hand, it got me out. So that was a good thing. On the other hand, I was, you know, like those blinders we were talking about before, like that's all I was thinking about in terms of will this fit in to the feed? Is it going to be something that people like? And, you know, maybe it was something that I liked, but it might not have been. You know, I I have I have other images that I've tried where the images I absolutely love that I just know are not going to be good on social media it just doesn't right. work and you know and it and it, it does trend that way you know they just don't get the same amount of attention and that's fine because at this point like you i've sort of i've moved away from that it's like okay well like i rarely post on instagram now also for that reason because i'm like you know i see it now as more of like a marketing thing than uh mm-hmm. a self-promotion of of my work so much like i'd rather leave that to my website yeah it's hard right yeah i mean I, I, I still post on social media mostly to stay relevant and also, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I like it when people like my work, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, but I also don't care if they don't. I mean, truly, I really, I used to a lot, but now if someone looks at my photo and they're like, Oh, I don't like the way you edited it or like, it doesn't do anything or it's not original or, Oh, that's a similar composition to what I've already seen. I don't really care. Like I'm just putting it out there because it's something I liked. I enjoyed making it. Right. Um, I'm not saying I'm like a really good photographer or that my work is the best ever. I just, you know, it's my way of just kind of sharing and being excited about my own stuff. And if other people like it, that's cool. Right. That's also cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes it's helpful to get the feedback. You know, like I've, I had uh, one image recently where somebody was like, he liked it. And then he wrote back later and he was like, you know what? I actually, I don't like it so much. <laughs> and I was like, and he put, put it publicly. He didn't like personally message me on that. And I was kind of like, you could have just told me privately, but, uh, 
you know, I I got his point. I was like, yeah, I can see how that could have improved the image if I if I had done it this other way. You know, you're right. And that was good feedback. But like it was sort of ha- the delivery of it was a little less than than good, I thought. <laughs> I did something the other day that I thought was a fun idea on Instagram and Twitter and stuff. And I posted this photo that I took in way back in 2015 or something. And it was edited really for that time period, you know, like had Orton in it and it, it just didn't look great, but I still like the photo. Um, and I still love the scene. Yeah. Um, but I was basically like, my, I think I said something like if I would have, if I would have been at the scene today, how would have I photographed it differently? It was kind of the question I asked. Yeah. And of course I opened up all this discussion for people to say like, yeah, it looks like (laughs) and like my friend Eric was like, yeah, I think you probably would have edited it differently. That's for sure. You know, and like I opened myself up to the criticism and I knew it was going to come and it still didn't. I still didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I knew it was coming. Right, right. So, I mean, like, no, no one likes it. But I also yeah. think if you can get past that, um, you know, that that initial blow to your yeah. ego. Yeah. And look at it objectively. I think you can improve from some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think so long as people aren't being hurtful, you know, even if they are. Yeah. You know, like, grow t- I don't know. tougher skin. Yeah. I just just brush it off. I mean, yeah. What, especially nowadays with social media, I, I find, you know, people that are posting stuff like that are either coming from one or two di- directions. One is they're just being a troll. Right. Or two, like, they're just, they're they're actually trying to help you, but it came across really badly. Yeah, yeah. So I just assume the latter. Right. And ignore the former. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, but yeah, I could talk about all this. um, I actually have like five more social, psychological theories. Oh, yeah. We could talk about if you wanted to. Sure. Yeah, let's hear them. Um. Okay, so so another uh, trap that we fall into uh, psychologically is this idea of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not can sure. You explain, if I've heard of it, but can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Yeah. So essentially, cognitive dissonance uh, refers to a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors, um, and it produces an, a feeling of discomfort, uh, leading to an either an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors to reduce the discomfort and restore balance. So, for Hmm. example, when you smoke, which is your behavior, and you know that smoking causes cancer, which is your cognition, those two things don't really sit well at the same time in your head. Yeah. So what the brain typically will do is try to diminish one of those two things. So most people say, well, I'm not going to get cancer. Or I that see. won't happen to me. And right. then other people will say, oh, I probably should stop smoking. Right, right. Right. But those two things can't exist together at the same time. Right. And so uh, I think this can apply in interesting ways in, in kind of how we behave and how we think about uh, creativity and, and our work in landscape and nature photography. Mm-hmm. So let's think about it in relation to um, like really fan fan fantasy like post processing techniques so the so here are the two conflicting beliefs okay okay so maybe. and and i i can use these cuz these are actually two conflicting beliefs that i personally have held 
yeah. <laughs> my own mind. Okay. Okay. So, so the first one is this post-processing technique is fine. I'm just creating art. It has no impact on anybody else or anything else. And it's totally awesome. Okay. That's the one. And then the second is this post-processing technique is cheating. It's an inauthentic way of saying that it represents reality. And it's really just lying to my audience. Right. So you yeah. have those two beliefs. So, so that you can't hold those two beliefs in your mind at the same time. Right. It's very discomforting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So typically what you'll see is you'll see someone either move really strongly in one way or the other. Right. Which is why we see such vitriol in that debate. Yes. Because people can't hold, have that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so there's a, you know, there's a tendency for people to seek consistency among their, their cognitions or their beliefs or their opinions. And when there's an inconsistency between those attitudes or behaviors, which is dissonance, um, something has to change to eliminate that. And you can only eliminate it in one of three ways. So the first is to change one of your attitudes or beliefs uh-huh. to make the relationship between the two uh, elements a consonant one. Yeah. Um, the second is to acquire new information that outweighs the dissonant beliefs. So. That's why you often see people like doubling down on art and theory and and all of that. Or you see other people saying like, oh, photography, it should be should be somewhat representative of reality and, and all of those arguments. Yeah. Um, and then the third is to reduce the importance of the cognitions altogether. So so a person could convince themselves that it's better to only care about what I do for myself than to consider my behavior's impact on landscape photography as an art form. So, you know, whatever I do is for me is all that matters. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting how yeah. psychology affects how we think about, uh, how we post-process, how we think about how others perceive our work right. and how we justify what it is we're doing with our art. Not to say that art should have any limits or boundaries, but often I've, I've, I hear people say like, oh, I'm doing this to be creative and artistic. And then what I've noticed is like most of the people that say that all of their art kind of looks the same as each other's. Yeah. So it's like, you're not being creative. You're just Following creating stuff that's popular. Right. Know? Right. It's like, you've, you've probably heard of hipsters, you know? Right. Like yeah. when I lived in Portland, like everyone was a hipster. Right. And like they <laughs> rebelled against conformity and conforming to popularity, but they all ended up looking the same anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same idea. Yeah. Exactly. You know, all these people, these people, and I say that as if it's negative, but. They all end up doing like the same stuff, like dropping in new skies or adding in Orton or adding in glow or, yeah, you know, like it's come on. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that, that brings me to one of my questions, which is in what ways has uh, social media, which we were already talking about and advanced post-processing techniques influence the public's perception of landscape and nature photography as an art form? Yeah, I think you could probably go in one of two directions, depending on who you ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say they're probably both right to some degree, but I think my perception is a little bit more correct. <laughs> um, but I do validate the other side of it as well. Yeah. I think for the most part, the general public sees photography as kind of a joke nowadays. Um, yeah. Especially, I mean, the first thing people ask you when you're at a art when you're at a photography gallery or if you're at an art fair or if you're showing people stuff online the first thing they say is like that's photoshopped right you know like no one believes that a photograph 
represents what the photographer actually experienced anymore. Yeah. And I think that's too bad because I think that's literally the most unique um, proposition of, that photography has as an art form is that it, it does have that constraint of representing some resemblance of reality. Right. Not to say that it ever can fully represent reality, you know, right. based on your, what you put in the frame or yeah, your shutter speed or all those things. But I think Generally speaking, people, what makes people think photographs are amazing when they see them is like, oh my God, you actually witnessed that? And well, then you put it together in such a really interesting way and then you arrange the elements and compose it in that way. And I can't believe that you experienced that. And that's incredible. And then if you just tell them well, like, no, none of that's true. I did it all in Photoshop and that wasn't there and this wasn't there. And the light that you see here was from a totally different time of day. And right. Like, I think you'll see people's literally their physical reaction, just their facial expression will change. They'll be like, Oh yeah, really? Um, but I will say on the flip side of that, I will play devil's advocate a little. I think that those kinds of techniques that people have employed have opened up lots of doors for Kate, for creative expression and um, in some ways, I think, especially in kind of more the fine art market where it comes to like, um, I don't think it necessarily applies so much to nature and landscape photography as much unless you're doing a lot of abstract work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people that are doing like double exposures or, you know, something, you know, something that's like more street photography that represents a scene, but they're using some really creative, uh, maybe they're doing mixed media or something. Right. I think for photographers that are kind of living in that more fine art realm, I think it's helped elevate photography to be more accepted as art. So sure. I think it's done a little bit of both. Yeah. Do you think there should be like a different genre of, you know, that is, you know, should that just be considered fine art photography? I mean, or should it have its or own digital art or digital art? Yeah. Like something that we should be classifying it sort of as different when, you know, so that that disappointment in the viewer doesn't occur. So much because they're going in, in with the expectation of this is a compiled image that's, you know, made up of a lot of different component parts that may or not may or may not exist at that time. Um, and right. then it's just sort of cool in its own right for that reason, rather than, uh, you know, making an imaginary scene that didn't exist and have people think that it actually had existed. So... I mean, I'll just kind of speak more of my personal belief, but then I'll kind of zoom out and talk more about the public or maybe uh, kind of the community of photographers in general. Yeah. So, yes, I strongly believe that if you're doing all kinds of crazy stuff and you're presenting a scene that is totally not something that anyone could ever see or experience um, and you're copying, pasting from different scenes and just creating like a perfect scene. I think it's useful to call that digital art. Yeah. Um, even if you say like using photographic material. Right. I think the reason for that is that there are people that, um, including myself, especially uh, that like, I love um, viewing and consuming landscape and nature photography that I know is connected to a, re a real experience. Yeah. And, and when it's not, it's, it's an, like, I, it just really turns me off. Like, I don't like it at all. Yeah. So it's useful for people like me who care. Yeah. But for the people who don't care, they would probably say, like, I don't call it whatever you want. Art is art. And I, I get that, too. 
Yeah. Um, but I think for people that are consuming it and value it in that other way, I do think that that could be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that um, over the weekend, I had the opportunity to read, I was reading part of Guy Tell's book, More Than a Rock. Oh yeah, I have it too. And he has a chapter about this actually. That's incredibly good. It's called Lie Like You Mean It. Yeah. <laughs> and, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah. And it's actually really helpful. And I'm, if you're cool with it, I just want to read a little passage. Oh, absolutely. From it. That would be great. Because um, it's really uh, impactful, I think. Yeah. Um, Please do. So he says, regrettably, there are also those photographers who lie about lying. Because he says lying is okay. Lie like, lie like you mean it. Mm-hmm. Um, those who follow trends and recipes without questioning, contemplating, or contributing anything of their own, those who try to pass off their work as representing objective reality because it's what their audience wants to believe, which parenthetically, I think that's why most people are doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and rather than take the time to educate their audience about the nuances of art and the many things that one can express in a photograph beyond this is what it looked like. So he's saying it's okay to say that landscape and nature photography, it doesn't have to always represent what you experienced, but you should also not tell people that it does. Right. If it didn't. Right. Which I think is what a lot of people do. And, and this, can, this, this happens a lot of ways. Like people will present something and they'll say, look at this photograph I shot. Right. Well, that implies it's a single frame. Right. That came out of the camera that you edited. Um, but really, it's not what you did. Right. But you're playing upon people's belief of, in that's what happened to make them think it's better than it is. Right. I mean, really, yeah. that's what people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why there is that public perception of, oh, that's Photoshopped. Right. There's, that's Correct. why there's that, that sort of negative connotation there. Because right, and... people have passed it off that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Without saying, like, this, this is not a photograph. This is a this is a digital art creation. Right. Because I, I think using it, the word it, photograph implies something for most people. Right. Right. And I think my my, you know, understanding of people who are not ph- photographers who have that sort of attitude of, oh, wow, that, what a beautiful image. It must have been photoshopped or, oh, wow, what a beautiful image. You must have a really good camera. <laughs> you know, it's not you, the photographer who created it. <laughs> right. Um, um, and, I, and I think it's because of that uh, transition to digital photography, I think that it has become synonymous that if, if it's not film, therefore it must be manipulated in some way that's negative um, and untrue, um, which is not always the case. Like, I, I feel like I've had to defend my images sometimes to say like, well, it's shot in a digital format that must be edited even on the very basic level. Like you can't, add a camera, print that image. It's just not how right. the technology works, you know, if you're shooting. And that's raw. that education piece that Guy's talking about. Right. Right. Like educating your audience, you know, to say like photographs don't have to represent reality. Um, sometimes I do and sometimes they don't. Right. But if I'm telling you that this photograph represented something I experienced, you should believe in that. Right. Yeah. You know, it has integrity and, in the word. And I think that's what people in the general public expect. Like they expect that this photograph represented something you experienced. Otherwise you wouldn't call it a photograph. Right. You would call it something else. Just like if, if I were to submit a film I created and it was the Avengers, uh, 
and it was CGI and the Hulk is in there. And I presented it to a documentary film festival. The people watching it would be like, what the heck is this? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not art. Right. It's just not what you said it is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, and that's all I'm saying is like, just be honest with what your, what your stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, I agree with that. So that's, that's where it brings me to the next question, which is, um, do you think there's a difference either ethically or artistically between minimally editing an image and heavily editing an image if the intent of the photographer is the same, which let's say is to, to document something or visually communicate a particular experience? So like, like, where is the line drawn? Is it in how many steps of post-processing is, are taken or is it have to do with the intent of what the photographer is communicating and how they're communicating that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's kind of what Guy is saying here too, as well as lie like you mean it. You know, if you're saying that it is trying to communicate something, that's different than saying it's representing something experienced, right? Right. So I think that's where, it, I think that's the important line to draw is it doesn't matter. Like the intent is great. Like if your intent is to create something that knocks people's socks off and it's a beautiful fabrication of an alternate reality, just tell people. Right. That's what you're doing. I don't think there should be a line drawn at all. I think that's up to the individual person. Just don't be a liar. <laughs> um, you know, I think I hate to bring it up, but I mean, there's a reason why people call it lying is because people present something like there's a very famous photographer that he has lots of captions. Well, there's a few of them, but they have lots of captions that describe an experience that they had when they created the photograph and what they witnessed. And then you actually look at the raw files or you take a post-processing tutorial from them and they show you what they did. And you're like, that is not what you experienced at all. Right. Um, so I personally, for myself, I try to, if, if I'm saying it's a photograph and it represents something like an experience, I'm trying to edit my photograph to, to, to best represent what that experience was like. Yeah. And to be true to that experience. Yeah. Now that's up to interpretation, right? Because if you were cold, for example, maybe you're going to put a little bit cooler white balance in the photograph or, you know, if the sunset made you feel really warm inside, maybe you're going to edit it a little warmer than it maybe was in person. Right. Um, so, you know, there's all there's all those artistic liberties that you can take. But I think if you're being true to the integrity of the subject, I think that's kind of where I draw the line. Mm -hmm. um, it's where you take an image and then you start dropping in stuff from other scenes or different times of the day and you're not really being true to the integrity of what was actually there or experienced or experienceable and then you're passing it off as if something it is or was right so it's that's like, where it, i have a big problem yeah there's like two levels of integrity right it's in in the creation of the image and then how that's communicated to a viewer right i i actually have zero problems with people that do that kind of stuff like go for it man like more power to you. Like, a, pfft, art is art. Like, do you do you. Right. Knock yourself out. But then yeah. don't, but then don't pass it off as something it's not. Right. Yeah. Because uh, that's, that's really offensive. And I think it's kind of a slap in the face to your peers. Yeah. 
who are actually trying to do it the way that they saw it. Right. Well, and it changes, as we were talking about earlier, it changes public perception of what that is too. reality and and stuff. And so that, that actually brings us into our next topic really well, which is um, I wanted to talk with you about the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, mm. which you are a co-founder of. So to start off, can you tell the listeners what the Natural Landscape Photography Awards are, uh, who else is involved and why you started it and any other details you want to share about the competition? Yeah, perfect. So as we were as we were talking about earlier, the type of photography that I've come to really value and appreciate and really love to consume and experience and uh, create myself and then see other people do and other see that stuff get celebrated mm-hmm. is the typical the existing uh, competitions don't tend to elevate that kind of stuff to kind of the top of the list, the cream of the crop, um, because they don't have any restrictions on what you can or cannot do, mm-hmm. which is fine because right. that's, you know, that's what they want to do. So instead of uh, complaining about that, uh, me and three other individuals decided to create a competition that actually celebrates that type of work and um, gives it a platform by which it can thrive um, without competing against uh, stuff that isn't like that. Yeah. Um, and great. And, and take it to to the to another level as well. We've actually carved out categories for aerial photography because we've seen trends in lots of competitions where aerial photography is kind of dominating. Mm-hmm. Which I I mean, a lot of my recent work is aerial, so I get it. It's it's a unique perspective. It's really dynamic. It's incredible stuff, and it's kind of not necessarily the same cup of tea. It's not the same genre. I mean, it's right. like romance novels versus um you know fan fiction based on nonfiction. i mean right. it's like they're two very different forms of landscape and nature photography both yeah. valid within their own right but probably shouldn't be competing against each other um and you know we could talk for hours probably about the pros and cons of even having competitions for art right um but you know i think me and the other co-founders, what we were seeing is um, a lot of the people's work that we really love, um, that we thought should be elevated and, excuse me, appreciated and rewarded and valued and we want to see more of, Yeah, was kind of getting um, ignored or, you know, swept in, you know, just it wasn't as a, um, appreciated. Right. And so we just really want to give... Um, photographers and photography that has those characteristics a place to live and be celebrated um and so we've uh we've pulled together some really incredible judges um part of the litmus test to see if this thing could even get off the ground was to see if we could find really qualified and highly respected judges that would do this yeah um, and we were super happy to to do that. So we have, um, you know, Sarah Marino and Sandra Bartoka from Germany and Stefan Forrester and William Neal wow. and Adam Gibbs and uh, Alex Noriega. Wow. And um, uh, I feel like I might be missing somebody. Uh, but yeah, we we're really, really excited about our list of judges. Um Oh, Alistair Ben as well. Oh, nice. Yep. And, you know, we've already, we've gotten a little bit of pushback from people saying, I wish you had more women. We wish you would have had 
uh, someone who wasn't white. And it actually, we actually really put some thought into that before identifying our judges. And it really just came down to how do we have judges that are going to attract and have the status to say this is a legitimate competition? Right. Well, and I I mean... not to go down that rabbit hole of, you know, women and minorities in, in landscape photography, but the, the numbers just really aren't there, right? Like, not yet anyway. There's just far fewer females and minorities doing landscape photography than white men. It's just the reality of what it is, you know? And- I mean, we, we established, like, a small list of criteria for our judges um, that weren't, it weren't, they weren't in any order. But when it came down to it, uh, there were only four women that we identified that met the criteria that we needed yeah and we invited two of them um and so yeah it was hard because we actually thought long and hard like who else can we invite who else would kind of fit the mold yeah and unfortunately like a lot of the uh women and or um people of color that you know might be good judges probably aren't necessarily seen as people that might be respected in terms of kind of what we're trying to do with mm-hmm. the ethos of the competition and the the natural landscape awards aspect of it. So right. it's, it was hard um, and we knew it was a risk, but we were kind of upfront about it too. Like, hey, we, had, we know this is a problem and we hope to see more people in the future. And yeah, it's tough. But yeah, we're really excited for it. Uh, the competition goes live uh, June 1st. Um, we've made our fees kind of in line with, some of the competitions that we see happening over in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think it's $30. I could pull up the exact numbers real quick if you give me a second. Uh, I should probably just memorize this. (laughs) Um, It's um, $40 for six images, uh, $60 for 12 images, and $100 for 18. And the max you can enter is 18. Okay. Um, and then we also have a project category, uh, which is $30 to enter six to 10 images. And it's like around a theme. So it could really be about anything. Cool. Um, so it could be like an environmental issue or a conservation issue or s- something else. Um, could just be about really cool rocks that you like, <laughs> right? I mean, whatever. Um, but that's kind of a unique thing that we're trying to do. And then in future years, we're thinking about uh, implementing some judge critiquing as well so that oh, people cool. can pay a little bit extra to get critiques yeah, so that they know why maybe they didn't win. And then we're also hoping to, depending on the success of the competition, we're hoping to publish a high-quality fine art book Oh, nice! Um, of the people who have won the different categories as well as kind of the highest-rated images. Um, and the other cool thing about our competition that I should probably mention is uh, Tim Parkin, who's... Uh, the founder and editor of On Landscape Magazine yep. is co- co-founding with us. And he's judged a lot of competitions over the years. And I'm sure. He's very familiar with kind of some of the weird stuff that makes competitions not work very well mm-hmm. or the judging go sideways. So we're going to be implementing some things in the judging procedures that will hopefully help alleviate or prevent some of the common things that you see in competitions where like, you know, often you'll see a photograph of a very common composition that everyone's seen before win a competition. You're like, hmm. how, how is this different or unique? You right. Know? So um, we're placing a high value on creativity 
um, and a high value on like a diversity of what is submitted. So we're really excited to see where it goes and we're hoping to do it long-term over many years. Yeah. We're committed in the first year to not take any profit for it, for the founders. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we know that people are sensitive to that. We don't want people to think we're just doing it to make money. Sure. Cause yeah. we're not. In fact, we actually have a very robust conversation almost every week as a group to say like, we are kind of uncomfortable making money and we don't want to be seen as making money. We're just really wanting to do this um, to create this thing that helps this type of photography get celebrated. Yeah. So what what will be the sort of restrictions or the criteria that would classify this type of photography? Yeah. So, so we do have um, some rules. Uh, so essentially the main, we call it the golden rule. So it's the integrity of the subject should be maintained. So another way to look at that would be to say, um, a viewer that's familiar with the landscape and the photographic process should not feel deceived that they were shown the original scene in the raw file. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will be requesting raw files for all the finalists. Yeah. Um, so some common things that will be kind of immediately excluded would be introducing new elements or compositing. So, you know, adding in skies, different foregrounds, birds, a moon, rainbows, aurora, Milky Way. You know, if it wasn't there, it it wasn't there. Right. (laughs) Um, Removing significant elements from the original scene, like a huge a hillside or something. Um, if it's something that's transient, we'll kind of allow that, you know, like maybe a small leaf or a branch. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we won't be allowing like significant distorting of existing elements, like stretching mountains to make them appear more dramatic or squishing a photograph to make it fit an aspect ratio for Instagram, Right. which um, I love that excuse. It's like, oh, I just did it so it would fit Instagram. <laughs> yeah. You could have composed mm-hmm. it differently and cropped. <laughs> yeah. Um, combining images, taking it significantly different focal lengths to create like a best of both worlds. Um, so for example, shooting a foreground at 14 millimeter and a mountain backdrop at 50. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. A lot of the people in the United Kingdom who saw our rules were like, people do that. Yeah. <laughs> and and us over here in the United States were like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty common. Um, uh, you know, combining images taken at significantly different times times of day. You know, for example, a lot of stuff people we see where they're shooting foreground just before sunset, and you combine it with clouds that were after sunset, and then combining astrophotography elements at night, and you're making it all in one photo. Yeah. Um, that's not allowed. You know, combining the best parts of an image sequence to create a perfect moment. Like if you have a scene where like fog's rolling in and then you composite in all the different sequences of fog, or maybe you have a wave that crashes into some rocks and you have a wave over here and a wave over here and a wave over here. It's like that that doesn't exist. And then we have some kind of permitted digital adjustments, including like black and whites and exposure bracketing and creating panoramas and removing dust spots. So what about focus, focus stacking? Yeah, focus stacking, exposure bracketing, that's all allowed. Yeah. You know, we're not saying no Photoshop. We're not saying no digital adjustments. We're just saying 
adhere to the subject that you photographed. Right. Like don't make it into some crazy creation that could never have existed or that you never saw. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Pretty, pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not like saying it. that stuff is bad. We're just saying we want to see the best of this type of stuff. Right. Well, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about you created a category for aerials because it's so separate, you know, so different than a type of landscape photography than typical landscape photography. This is just like its own little niche of photography processing, you know, compared to what's typically out there in competitions that allows any level of digital photography or digital editing. So you're just basically saying we just want, you know, like to be compared to like in in this exactly you know so exactly like yeah. we don't want avengers being compared to i don't know some documentary right schindler's list although i pick schindler's list every day yeah <laughs> but i'd like it i like avengers too right exactly <laughs> but like they both shouldn't win best cgi movie right right exactly so yeah cool so so it starts in june you said yeah, June 1st. So we're going to be doing a lot of push and marketing and things like that. So, um, you know, we have a lot of financial forecasts yep. um, to show, like, if we get X number of submissions, then we'll be able to do this. But we're pretty much committed to the prize money. Yeah. Um, and basically what we've said is if for some crazy reason we don't get enough submissions to pay for our costs, then we'll just give everyone their money back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we don't think that's going to happen. We think there's going to be enough interest yeah, in no. this to at least I think have so. it go get off the ground for year one. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm excited yeah. for it. So, yeah, we yeah. Hope, hopefully you'll, we'll see some of your photos. Well, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so shifting gears just a little bit before we wrap up. So uh, one of the guiding philosophies or principles that's integral to what we do at Outdoor Photography School is this idea of putting nature first. And a while back, I had put together this thing called the OPS Manifesto, um, which I could read briefly if you want, but um, it's basically a, a declaration of these core values and why they are or should be important to us at, as outdoor photographers. So I'll just read it briefly in case people that aren't familiar with it. But That'd be great. Yeah. So I say that uh, at OPS, Outdoor Photography School, we commit to put nature first, even if it means missing the shot, Respect all species and ecosystems. Be kind to others. Lead by example. Remember that we are part of nature, not separate from it. Know before we go. Leave no trace. Pack it in, pack it out. Know our limits. Plan for the unexpected. Advocate for untouched landscapes, dark night skies. Keeping wildlife wild. Produce images with integrity and authenticity. Mm. Explore the outdoors rather than sit in front of a screen protect what's left like our lives depend on it and it does yeah it totally does so um i was really excited when i learned about the nature first photography alliance because the messaging and purpose is so similar to that and so i'm totally on board i'm already a member of the alliance i'm trying to figure out ways to be a partner and i, I know you're one of the co-founders of the the nature first photography alliance so for those listeners who are not yet familiar with the Alliance, can you please explain the story behind it, why it exists, and how to get involved if they would like to? Yeah, absolutely. Story time. Yes. Okay. So, well, it's actually a really cool origin story. So um, about four or five years ago, uh, my friend Eric Stenzlin, who's a photographer in Estes Park, 
Uh, he he makes all his photographs, almost all of them, exclusively in Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay. And he has published some guidebooks, and he has a gallery in Estes Park. And a lot of people go to different locations because of his photographs, things of that nature. And there was a pretty remote lake that he used to go to all the time to photograph wildflowers in the summer. And he went back to it for the first time after a few years of not going. And it was completely trampled. There were no wildflowers. Uh, the lake was just completely trashed. Wow. He was just, he was totally distraught. Yeah. You know, he was like, and, and his first reaction was, I did this. Yeah. This is because of me. This is because of my photography. And and he was overwhelmed with feelings of guilt. I mean, I might be speaking for him a little bit, but I really remember him telling the story very clearly. So Yeah. Um, and he wanted to do something to prevent this from happening all over the world to other people and to other places. Yeah. So he originally reached out to Sarah Marino um, and to see if she would be interested in putting together like a little PDF uh, that would go out to um, nature and landscape photographers to just kind of outline the problem and get their buy in and kind of just put it out there. Yeah. And they were really amazed. I mean, Sarah helped him write it and refine it. She's a really great writer and she spends a lot of time writing. Yeah. And she sent it, they sent it out to a lot of high prominent photographers and they got a lot of negative feedback, a lot of pushback from the industry. Wow. A lot of people saying, oh, this isn't photographer's fault. This is Instagram's fault. And this isn't us. This, this has nothing to do with photographers. It's like that, and they were that, really, that uh, dissonance that you were talking about earlier. <laughs> I think that's a little bit of it. And I mean, there's some truth to what they're saying. Yeah. I mean, we're just part of the problem, right? Right. Um, but, I mean, people don't know about these places unless they see them somewhere. Right. And most of that's through photography. Yep. Um, and so they wanted, they really strongly wanted to do something more about it. So Eric uh, had a bunch of people in mind. And he reached out to me and he said, hey, I know through your podcast, you have all these connections. Um, I want you to be a part of this. I know you believe in what I'm trying to sell here and you're behind this idea. And let, help, can you help me organize getting people together and let's let's figure this out? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So we got together about 10 photographers in Colorado about three years ago now to the date almost. It was about a month in February. Mm -hmm. Um and we met up, and it was uh, me, Jack Brower, David Kingham, Jennifer Renwick, uh, Tony Lachuski, uh, Michael um, Anderson. Uh, it was it was an incredible assembly of people. Uh, Scott Bacon, Eric Stensland. I mean, it was um, Sarah Marino, Ron Coscarosca. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we were able to get Scott Bacon to join us, and he's a he works for a software company and he helps them kind of do product launches. And he's very familiar with like Scrum and like organizing ideas and like getting things off the ground. Great. And so we just spent the whole first day trying to organize our thoughts around what exactly is the problem. Yeah. And so we did all this brainstorming, we had all these sticky notes everywhere. And it was an amazing process. And where we, and, and that helped us kind of, nail down like what are the core drivers to the problems that we're seeing out there in terms of these places just getting destroyed yeah 
And really, that was the core intent was to prevent more of that from happening in the future. Yeah. Um, and and it might sound silly to people. I've heard some people say, "Well, you're just you're just trying to protect the the grass." Right. People say that, <laughs> and it's like if you haven't seen the before and after of some of these places, you just wouldn't get it. Yeah. Um, and and fortunately, a lot of the people you had in the room have been film photographers for decades, and they've seen a lot of these places just get hammered and destroyed by visitation. Right. And sometimes that grass is actually like fragile alpine plants. <laughs> you know? Right. Or it could be sandstone that's fragile. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so from that, we identified the core problems. And then we set out the next day to identify what were the principles that we would then create to prevent those problems from happening. Mm -hmm. So that is how we arrived at the seven principles. Yeah. Could you go over what those seven principles are? Real yeah, quick? I've totally, I've totally got them memorized. <laughs> no, I always have to look them up because yeah. I don't remember them. So the first principle is to prioritize the well-being of nature over photography. Educate yourself about the places you photograph. Reflect on the possible impact of your actions. Use discretion if sharing locations. Know and follow rules and regulations. Always follow leave no trace principles and strive to leave places better than you found them. And actively promote and educate others about these principles. Yes. Yeah. I think that's great. And we felt like it, we tried to keep them all as positive as possible. Like do this instead of saying, don't do this. Right. I think the closest we come to a don't is use discretion when sharing locations. Yeah. Um, Cause let's face it. There are certain locations that are very set. They're set up very well to handle visitation. Right. Yep. You know, there's a parking lot with paveways and pavement and, you know, there's paved trails and there's, you know, like they're set up for that. Right. But there's other places where if you take 10 people and then those people take 10 people and those people take 10 people and those 10 people share it on Instagram and they geotag it. Yeah. That place is jacked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's just thinking about what's going to happen if you do something. Yeah. And it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're excited. You want to share, you know, your work. Yes. Or we're and, humans. Yeah. We love to share. That's how we've survived. Right. Yeah. And it, so it's, you know, one of the challenges that I find is how to balance the desire to want to connect people with nature. Like that's one of my main goals with outdoor photography school is, you know, giving people the tools and resources, not just to do photography, but also how to be safe and comfortable in the outdoors and respect it properly and all of that. Right. Um, so yes, I want to encourage more people to be out in the outdoors, but how do we do that in a way where we're not just leading to more destruction simply because of the numbers you know, we have such a uh, massive population problem on the earth. So how do we, how do we balance that? I, I really struggle with that. You know, like when I, I mean, in an ideal world, we have set up a process for that to be very concerted and thoughtful, right? Yeah. But we don't live in an ideal world. So I would say to your point, which is very good, is that if people don't experience the outdoors, they don't, they're not going to appreciate them. So I think Often what we see in people that are doing desecrating places and, you know, leaving dirty diapers at <laughs> locations and carving their names into rocks and all those kinds of things, it's it's not because they don't like the outdoors or they want to be a jerk. 
it's because they haven't been shared that appreciation and know what it what it takes to actually preserve these places long term. Right. So I think the first key is to get uh, people out as early in their life as possible. Um, to give them that awe and that power of nature and appreciation of the places, um, and couple that with some education. Yeah. You know, it's not about cramming stuff down people's throats, but, you know, and I would say if there's any way that we can use it through workshops or Instagram stories or whatever we do, if there's ways to infuse that education to people that are viewing our photographs or in our workshops, if we tell people like, hey, um, we're going to go to this location. I think it's going to be okay. But in order for it to be okay, these are the things I want us all to think about. And here are the things that we're going to see there. And here's the, here's the things we have to do to make sure that those things are there again for us next year. Right. And I caution you to share this location with others unless you know that they're going to do the same. Right. So I think it, there's a way to do it in a way that isn't, it's, you know, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, stewardship. Stewardship. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. You know, you're, you're being a steward of these places and that means not only taking care of them, but also sharing with others what that looks like. Right. And sort of shepherding them through the process. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah, I think, I think education is the key. Um, and I'm not the best, like, oh, so bad. Last summer I was climbing a 14er here in Colorado with my best friend. It was his last 14er and it was a huge celebration. And, it happened to be in this this basin called um, Upper... Well, it doesn't matter what it's called, but it's this very popular place. Uh, Upper Colony Lakes is what it's called. And I used to be on the board of directors for a nonprofit that created all of this trails there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the signage there that was designed to protect the place and keep people from creating social trails and protect the tundra yeah. and stuff like that. And there were so many people... Just cutting the tundra while oh, I was there. And I was like, yeah, I was like literally yelling at people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that's not good. Like, yeah, it doesn't work. I don't, <laughs> but I was just so overcome with anger. Yeah. Um, but it, I would, if I could go back, I'd be like, okay, I need to maybe just try to approach these people. Right. And <laughs> be nice to them and try to explain to them. But I was so hot. Yeah. Yeah. You know? no, it's, so. it's a big challenge, right? I mean, having all the anger like you were experiencing or like for me, I hate conflict. Right. And so I would be like, ah, oh, how do I approach them and not be co- totally awkward about it and and uncomfortable and but still get my point across in an assertive way that like, no, you should really listen to, and take heed on this, you know? Well, on the same day, I ran into a guy. This is wilderness area. And I ran into a guy on the trail and... And I probably shouldn't say that's what I'm going to, but he pull out of his backpack, he pulls out his drone and it's the same drone that I own. And, and I was like, Hey man, you can't fly that here. This is wilderness. Like you can't take off from here. Yeah. It's not legal. And he was like, well, um, no one's going to know. It's fine. It's no big deal. You're like, I was like, well, I know all the people here <laughs> I mean, It's Labor Day weekend. There's tons of people. And I was like, I, I don't think the people here want to hear a drone. Yeah. flying around and plus this is wilderness it's illegal and he's like well what is like the ranger is gonna the ranger is gonna come stop me and i was like what if i'm the ranger yeah i said it like that and he's like are you and i was like <laughs> yep 
And he freaked out. I mean, I shouldn't have done that. I think that's illegal to impersonate a federal officer. But it worked. I mean, he was freaked out. He's like, I'm so sorry. And he put his drone away. And like, he was like super apologetic. And hey, man, it worked. It worked. That's good. I mean, I couldn't get through to him any other way. I was trying to be super nice about it. And I was even like, hey, man, like, I own the same drone. I know. And he's like, well, the drone doesn't tell you. It says it's fine. I looked at it. It says it's fine. It's not a no fly zone. I'm like, did you look at uh, Before You Fly? Right. App on the FAA? And he's like, no, what's that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, geez. I mean, yeah. I was just trying to, be, I was trying to be nice and educate him. And he was like, yeah. And that's when I was like, okay. Right. You're going to be that way? <laughs> All right. All right. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> And of course, everyone that was with me, they were like, yeah. embarrassed, like, uh, I don't know this guy. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm glad it worked anyway. I mean, but it was the only thing that would work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's what people think. It's like, oh, it's just one time. It's only me. It's no big deal. You know, but then. And I get it. Like, it's super appealing to want to fly your drone in a beautiful place oh, like that. Of course. Yeah. And I've accidentally flown my drone in places that I didn't know were wilderness or didn't know that they were off limits because the map I had didn't show that. Yeah. Um, so you can get it wrong. And, you know, it's, it's but if someone would have came up to me and said, hey, man, let me show you how what you're doing is not right. I would have been like, oh, shit, right. I'm so sorry. Yeah, exactly. You know, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up here, um, are you up for doing a little lightning round? Of course. All right. Let's do it. So first thing that comes to mind, okay? All right. All right. <laughs> What's your favorite subject to photograph? Ooh, mountains. Okay. What piece of gear uh, can't you live without that's not your camera or tripod? A uh, telephoto lens. Mm. What, any specific one? 100 to 400. Okay. IPA or stout? Oh, that's not nice. Uh... <laughs> My friends are going to kill me, but I'm going to say stout. Oh, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I'm drinking a Belgian quad. It's called the Reverend. Oh, nice. It's a 10%. Ooh. It's kind of my go-to. Is it? Yeah. What's your favorite trail food? Mmm. Um, Fritos. Mmm. That's my favorite post-trail food. Yeah. So <laughs> Fritos is awesome for backpacking because it has like some of the highest calorie per weight. Oh, interesting. In your opinion, what's the best light to photograph in? Mm, sunset. Mm. But after sunset. So like... Like blue hour? Like before blue hour, but way after the sun goes down. Okay. Because you get this... If you got the right conditions, you get this super nice glow. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get that at sunrise too, but... Right. It tends to last longer at sunset. Yeah. Cool. Uh, why photography? Uh, um, it's a way to connect artistically to personal experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, and what does connecting with nature mean to you? Everything. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it reminds me of, of how small we are in the grand scheme of things. It reminds me of what's really important in life. It gives me humility. Um, it gives me a purpose in terms of photography, but also something to fight for mm -hmm. um, because it's given me so much. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's everything. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Well, Matt, this has been a lot of fun. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Before we say goodbye here, if people wanted to learn more about your photography and any other projects you have going on, what would be the best way for them to find out more? Yeah, so I would say probably the first thing is check out my podcast, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, and uh, go to my website, mattpainphotography.com. And if you want to read really long trip reports about my mountain climbs mm. and see really bad photos that I took in 2011 and 2012, <laughs> but also sort of better photos in 2017, you can go to 100summits.com. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, and I'll put all the, the links that we've mentioned and you know resources and whatnot in the show notes so that people can check them out. Awesome. Well, yeah. Keep up the podcast, and I think it's more the merrier, man. The more conversations we can have and yeah. connections we can make, I think it's I think it's beautiful. Awesome, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt Payne. And again, you can find out more about Matt's podcast and his photography over on his website at mattpainphotography.com. And I highly recommend checking out the Natural Landscape Photography Awards and the Nature First Photography Alliance. Again, thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. And thank you, listeners, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate you, and I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. If you want to get the links and other information mentioned in today's episode, you can go to the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode one. We have several exciting guests coming up on the podcast, including... Chase Tucker, who is a certified strength and conditioning coach who helps people like you and me prepare our bodies for pain-free hiking. Yes, sign me up. And we have fine art landscape and nature photographer Brenda Tharp, who is passionate about sharing her love of and respect for the natural world through her images, educational offerings, and workshops. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on these great conversations. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll also be answering a couple of your submitted questions. If you would like to submit a question to be answered on Tidbit Tuesday, just go over to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you will be able to record your short message. Till then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.